Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy, and today's guest is Carol Hamilton, group president of acquisitions for L'Oreal. In this episode, we talk to Hamilton about why she loves the brands that can surprise her, how she stays ahead of a rapidly changing industry, and why authenticity is key for connecting with younger audiences. Hope you enjoy the episode. So today on the Beauty Podcast, we have an industry veteran, Carol Hamilton of L'Oreal USA. She was recently named Group President of Acquisitions and has been with the company for decades. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Carol, you first started your career in advertising, at Gray Advertising, if that's correct. Yes. Um, How did you first become interested in the beauty category? So I was interested in the beauty category from the time I was five. In fact, I raided my mom's makeup drawer and was constantly trying on all the different lipsticks. And I found that in junior high, I knew every single shade of Revlon lipstick. Wow. So I was a beauty junkie at heart. And quite frankly, when I landed the job at Gray Advertising as a secretary, this was before Mad Men, I was surprised they actually paid people to work at beauty companies. And I was the secretary for eight creatives um, on the Revlon account. So that's how I, not only how I became interested in beauty, but how I started a career in beauty. So when you were at Gray and working on Revlon, what were some of kind of the key learnings that you were able to parlay when you finally made your way over to L'Oreal? So I discovered at Gray that the creative process was a fluid one. And my biggest learning at Gray was that I was not afraid of the creative process. Um, Being surrounded by creatives, I started to see how they worked. I started to be able to pick up some of their um, ways of thinking. And I think it was a great place to have started my career because it took the intimidation out of being creative or not being creative. And so I always embraced that aspect of of my my career. You've had um, several different roles at L'Oreal. What was your first? How did you get started there? So I started at L'Oreal in 1984 as the director of marketing to launch skincare for the L'Oreal brand. Uh, I never did um, because my first recommendation actually at L'Oreal was that the product that they were working on, which of course I didn't know about when I accepted the job because it was um, confidential at the time, um, it was not at all right for the American market. It was 1984 and there were three greasy creams called Plenitude that had been launched in France and it would have been really quite a disaster if they had launched at that time, if we had launched at that time. So I found myself in the position of having to recommend uh, to not launch the product for which I was hired to launch. Wow. Sounds like a difficult (laughs) problem to have. It was. It was very interesting. Um, What are some of the other kind of areas of purview you've had while at L'Oreal? So I've been extremely fortunate in my career at L'Oreal to have um, really had a career that covers so many different aspects of beauty. So for the first 24 years, I worked um, in the mass division on the L'Oreal Paris brand and built that brand from a small indie brand. We did about $150 million when I joined to um, the largest global beauty brand um, 24 years later, where we were doing the equivalent of about a billion seven. 
um, at the time. This was in the U.S. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity to be an architect of a brand, working like an entrepreneur, but in a huge company and able to see how a brand can build over a long period of time, which is very unusual in a corporation, especially especially now. So building that brand from being one really an expert in only one category, which was hair color, to an expert in four categories, both makeup, makeup, um, skin care, hair care, and hair color, was truly an incredible, um, incredible opportunity to be able to embrace. Carol, it seems like there's a through line in your career, you know, kind of incubating and starting L'Oreal Paris, but also you've been instrumental in um, identifying other really key indie brands for L'Oreal, like It Cosmetics and Urban Decay and Clarisonic. Tell me a little bit about kind of identifying those brands and helping to build them. So I really love um, working on the Lux portfolio for L'Oreal. I started working on the Lux portfolio in 2008. And at the time, the beauty industry was starting to change. And the rise of the indie brands were transforming the way women were shopping for luxury, as well as retail was transforming with the um, success of Sephora and the growth of Ulta in our market. So when I look for a brand to complement our portfolio. I not only want the brand to complement our portfolio from a category perspective or from a positioning perspective, but also from a business model perspective, um, and also to really fill gaps with retailers. So for example, when um, I joined the Lux division in 2008, L'Oreal did not really have a presence at Sephora. Wow. And Sephora was the fastest and still is the fastest growing retailer in the luxury space. So for us um, to beat the market and to remain competitive, we absolutely needed to have brands that were succeeding in, in Sephora and not trying to make our brands more elastic than they were and fit, kind of trying make them sort of jam them into a space where they really didn't fit all that well with the consumers. So we looked at brands that not only fulfilled new categories, but opportunities to grow our share within um, a retailer. So with something like Urban Decay or It, what was attractive to you back then when you were dealing with them? So first with Urban Decay, it was such a fantastic experience um, to work on that acquisition. And um, what really attracted us was that we did not have a makeup specialist brand in our portfolio. Believe it or not, it seems amazing, but we did not have a makeup specialist brand. So we really needed one and wanted one and identified Urban Decay as one of our top top potential um, acquisition targets. And um, the other thing is that uh, I already mentioned our share of market at Sephora, but Urban Decay at the time was the number two brand after Bare Essentials. So this immediately changed our um, clout with um, Sephora by um, attracting and partnering with Urban Decay, which understood the Sephora consumer like we did not understand prior to the acquisition. So that's what really attracted us. It was both category, makeup, specialist makeup, which was just starting to really rise based on the selfie and the influencer phenomena. And then also the the importance of um, their position with Sephora was truly groundbreaking. What about something like Clarisonic, which is like a totally new category or was at the time, hand devices, doing something like microfacials at home. Um, How do you kind of introduce that to your portfolio as well as to the customer? 
So Clarisonic was launched in 2004, and we acquired the company at the end of 2011. Mm -hmm. So the idea of um, sonic um, facial cleansing was already really being used by beauty junkies and was uh, an, an incredibly popular gesture at that time. Um, so the way we looked at the device market was that it was going to completely expand our deep knowledge of skincare and allow us to understand how the consumer was playing not just with formulations, but also with the combination of formulations and devices. And we saw it as a bridge between the at-home market and the professional market to really understand how consumers were making their skincare regimens more sophisticated. So it was very um, important for L'Oreal in terms of our skincare knowledge to understand that consumer and how she was thinking about skincare and also what the device was doing to her skin. Carol, tell us a little bit about how your own personal preferences may guide some of your decisions when it comes to acquisitions. So I love that question. Um, I'm a serial shopper. I love to shop and I especially love to shop for brands. So clearly you fall in love with brands and um, those would be the ones that would be the easiest to recommend to our company to acquire. But I have to also tell you that in the search for the perfect brand, I never close my mind because I have found once I start to meet with the people who work on the brand, to talk to retailers, and to understand the brand in such a deep way that you need to in order to make a recommendation for acquisition, um, most of the brands that I have acquired have not been brands that I thought I would recommend. Really? Yes, they've been surprising. As I've understood the, um, the secrets of their success, and the smarts of the people who, the founders especially, who have created the brand, you get a profound um, understanding of how they've changed the beauty world. And so I found myself always needing and wanting um, to keep an open mind um, for that brand that surprises me. Tell us a little bit about the idea of founder-led stories. You know, they've always been very important um, in the beauty space, but we're hearing a lot more of it um, yep. right now, especially in the direct-to-consumer market and online digitally native brands. How important is that founder story for L'Oreal? The founder story for L'Oreal is crucial, and I really love founder brands, and I really love founders um, because each of these women, they're mostly women, um, some men, but mostly women have an incredible amount of courage, determination, thoughtfulness, and a deep um, conviction on what makes their brand different. Um, and they are not led by committees, but led by their own um, tenacity and understanding of what they want their brand to be and what values they want their brand to stand for. So within a world where you're working with the best corporation in beauty in the world, and you're able to complement that with this entrepreneurial indie spirit that founders bring. It's it's such a great combination, and we learn so much from the founders. 
So going off of that, Carol, um, how are overall industry trends like wellness and, say, cannabis influencing decisions when it comes to L'Oreal acquisitions? They're very important when it comes to acquisitions and our and our choices. Um, the beauty industry is moving faster than it ever has. I, I refer to it often as a TGV train. Um, it's going faster than the speed of light. And so we have to look at our portfolio, being the biggest beauty brand and most important beauty company in the world, we have to look at our portfolio in the context of broader consumer trends. And so for me, um, really understanding the deeper trends that are motivating men and women well beyond beauty. Um, so for example, wellness didn't start in beauty, but it's so important for beauty today that for me, it is transcending beauty and permeating so many things about beauty that we have to be really aware of what's going on and it strongly influences our acquisition targets. What other trends do you think are, besides wellness, are particularly interesting to you right now? I find the trend of personalization very interesting. Everybody wants their own version of something and they don't want to look like the status quo. So speaking directly to someone with personalized offerings to me is a big trend, again, which goes across many different categories or segments. Um, also data-driven data-driven marketing, which is more of an expertise than a trend, but it's going to change the way consumers look at brands because they're going to be much more demanding about how they are served by a brand based on the data that that brand is able to have within their um, brain, within their brain power. So data-driven personalization is extremely important. And then also transcending all trends um, is the concept of the experience that a brand gives you, not just the product itself, but how does that product um, give me an experience which is surprising and delightful and memorable so that it sticks in my mind and makes me want to use it again. That is something that is really new in the last five years and more and more important to consumers. Going off of that, you know, from the consumer side and from the brand side, you there's so much more information about the brand out right. there, especially with social media and seeing how much engagement there is on Instagram or other platforms. Does knowing all of that information and seeing that play out in real time really help drive your decisions? Yes and no. Um, the reason why yes is you absolutely have to know what a brand looks like on Instagram, what especially what the product reviews are, what influencers are saying and the blogs are saying about the brand, about the founders, and I think especially about the brand and founders' values. So that's incredibly important. But the reason why I said yes and no is that's the yes part. The no part is that, again, the, the, the um, space is moving so fast I keep wondering what is going to replace the influencer trend and their power today. And I think it's going to happen rather quickly. So looking for what that next trend is and thinking about where we should be taking our communication platforms is as important as being stuck on your device looking at what's going on today. Mm -hmm. What do you think... Um in terms of newness, whether I know you can't give away all of your secrets, <laughs> but where are areas that you think within the L'Oreal portfolio or, you know, overall trends that are really kind of sparking, you know, ideas or the beginnings of ideas for you? Well, I think you've been very good at 
mentioning them. So clearly wellness, um, natural products are growing very, very fast. Clean beauty is growing very fast. All of those are reflections of what consumers are valuing today. And I, I, one phrase that I really love is that wellness is the new status symbol. And having experiences in the wellness space, whether it's with brands or with vacations or with um, just different lifestyle um, opportunities is so important for us. And we, we clearly have our eyes on that. Speaking of that, um, Carol, you guys recently launched Seed Phytonutrients, yes. which is a sustainable beauty brand, I believe, in April. Mm-hmm. And so, how does those, how do those kind of brands that the opportunity to incubate brands within L'Oreal counterplay to acquiring bland, acquiring brands? And how do you kind of see those two pieces of the puzzle working together? So one cannot replace the other. We need both to be successful, to continue to innovate in the in the beauty space. I mean, L'Oreal is a company known for its innovation, and we're constantly innovating within our brands. So creating a new brand is within our DNA. Um, we just don't do it that often. Um, and the way I look at it is that we need for acquisitions to succeed, and we need for incubator brands to succeed to really be to continue to be the best in our the best in our field um so to me they coexist and nurture each other and play off of each other and i really want to say a huge shout out to shane for creating seed um, the seed brand because it's really really well done absolutely um carol tell me a little bit about um you know the beauty space is so fragmented right now there's so many different areas to play in um from your perspective how do you kind of pick and choose your moments within so much going on? Well, that that defines my day uh, because you have to be constantly on the hunt. Um, you have to be very externally focused because you never know where you're going to look under a rock or find something really incredible. Um, so it's really a, a, a big adventure to constantly keep your eyes and ears open to find that undiscovered brand. So it's there is no formula. It's just making sure that you don't sit at your desk and expect the brand to come to you because the brands are not going to come to you. I mean, sometimes they do, but the most exciting brands often are ones that you meet um, at an event or at a conference or at a summit when, where you strike up a conversation and you get to know the founder and then voila, three years later, you may make an acquisition. Right. How much of your job is really being externally focused? You know, you know, going to these events, going to these summits, meeting with various brands. Like, can you tell us a little bit about what your day does look like? So it's always a mixture um, because it, the brand is also very analytical. So we are constantly looking at trends on social media and looking at course at MPD and at Nielsen. So you have to both look at what the what the numbers are telling you. Um, what um, all of the publications are telling you in the blog. So there is a lot of internal research and discussions that are going on and also discussions strategically about what is the next priority in terms of acquisitions for L'Oreal because each acquisition means you're not going to acquire all of the other ones out there, at least not not so soon afterwards. So you have to be very careful and mindful of your choices um, as you're selecting the perfect acquisition. So I imagine we're going to hear some 
new news from you guys soon. You've been in your role for how long now? Oh, just a month. Just a month. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my new role is just a month, but I've been working on luxury acquisitions for 10 years. Right. Yeah. Um, How do you think that... um, the M&A space has kind of changed across the board in beauty. I mean, it seems like a very, very hot area for private equity firms, for hedge funds, for everyone across the board. So for L'Oreal to kind of compete in that space, you have been a leader forever. Mm -hmm. But also to compete against these smaller players, maybe potentially have been doing it in different ways. Mm -hmm. How are you guys going to approach that? So... In the same way that we always have, what is different about the market is that there is uh, more cash available and smaller amounts of cash available at different stages of a young brand's life cycle. So there are ways that a brand can get the funding and support through angel investors, venture capital funds, and private equity funds that are more robust and available than they were even five years ago. That being said, I think what separates L'Oreal from that kind of investment is the strategic expertise that we bring to a brand and the huge networking resources that a company has when they join with us. So it's just important to make sure that you're um, sharing the advantages of a partnership with L'Oreal versus the private equity firms or the venture capital firms. So in terms of, you know, what L'Oreal offers and what L'Oreal provides, Mm -hmm. say, from a venture capital fund or a private equity fund, what do you think you guys do that's unlike anyone else? We have so many strengths to share with founders um, and with young brands. Um, Certainly our global prowess. Um, is unsurpassed and very important um, for an indie brand, which uh, cannot succeed in the same way as a strategic like L'Oreal can help the brand succeed on a global level. So that's one of the major areas of expertise. Another one is digital, because L'Oreal has become so sophisticated and accomplished in digital um, expertise. Uh, And that's something that a young company finds hard to invest in, um, given all the priorities they have to succeed. So those would be two of the spaces. And then just the networking across the supply chain, um, operations, marketing, everything. There's so much that L'Oreal has to offer in this space to founders and their brands. Carol, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, you were seeing a lot of these DTC brands or digitally mm-hmm. native brands kind of, you know, striking up partnerships, whether it's with Sephora or Ulta or, you know, any number of retailers, um, they're being acquired. I mean, do you think there is, um, in terms of the retail landscape, how important is physical retail versus digitally native retail and vice versa? <laughs> So I'm a strong believer in physical retail. Mm-hmm. I think that consumers want a real life experience and that just experiencing life and brands through your device through a small window is limiting at some at some point and consumers gradually get that. So I am one of those proponents of that retail is not dead. It's just how you do retail. And to make retail very exciting and di- and um, differentiated is really the role that a new retail um, format has to play. 
So do you think that there are like more and more customers, you know, like looking on their phone, discovering a brand on their own and then necessarily shopping in stores and that kind of really relationship? Totally. Totally. It's so fluid now. It's like gender fluidity. This is retail fluidity. So you can't say that one is better than the other, but the combination of the two together is what's really important. And it's not just the two. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got, um, you've got, the, the internet, obviously, you've got um, social media, you've got so many places, um, pop-up stores, different retail experiences, even like West Elm, I walk in now, and they're showing, they're, they're, they have little spaces for beauty. I mean, you find beauty, beauty is popping up everywhere. Because again, I think it's part of a woman's lifestyle. And that she likes to find it in specialized places that express the values and differences of the brands that are that are found there. Because beauty is so culturally relevant, like you're saying, like seeing it in a West yeah. Elm or seeing it in a J. Crew, and you know there are a lot of conversations around cultural conversations around beauty right mm-hmm. now, whether it's like anti-aging or yep. diversity and inclusivity. How much? How has beauty kind of changed from you know being? a vanity project to being more part of like the cultural norm in in your own career? To me, the most uh, important part of beauty is to um, elevate a woman's self-worth. And when you think about that, then beauty is about showing women of all backgrounds, all all, um, gender gender types, fluidity, I'm search for losing words there. Um, And that it's an expression of a woman celebrating herself in the way she wants to be at that moment. And so our acquisition, for example, of It Cosmetics was driven not just because of the success of the brand and the charisma of Jamie and Paolo, but it was really driven by their deep understanding that there is not one kind of beauty and that beauty needs to be attainable and that you need to celebrate every single woman's beauty and so they looked at beauty in so much more of an inclusive way than a lot of big companies had done before that and that is what motivated me so much to appreciate the brand and recommend them for acquisition because Jamie truly was celebrating every woman's beauty no matter how she looks physically in a traditional way. That's something that millennials and Gen Z are talking about a lot. Yes. And, you know, a lot of beauty companies, a lot of fashion companies across the board are really trying to tap into that zeitgeist yep. and what's important to them. Um, but what comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg? Is it yeah. about attracting what the millennial wants or is it about doing something that's inclusive and, and diverse and gender fluid from the get go? What do you think is how do you kind of approach that? Today, what I'm seeing is that it's become a mandate, a price of entry for brands to express this inclusiveness. And I think there's a trap there because you see this stereotypical now inclusiveness, one from here, one from there, one from here. And it's starting to show up in a way that is 
not authentic. And it's it's hard to express exactly why and hard to put your finger on it. But I think you know if someone is just jumping on the bandwagon and doing a shoot and casting for a lot of different types to check off the boxes, you can see through that. There has to be something much deeper in a brand value system, in the products they offer, in the charities they're supporting, in who they hire, how they represent people that to me, will separate the truly inclusive brands from those who just are doing it because they feel they have to. In terms of, you know, that kind of transparency and authenticity, how important is that in beauty today for you and for L'Oreal? For me, it's everything. I really believe that consumers now are seeing through this through, I really believe today that consumers are seeing through this, you know, one standard of beauty, and that it's being rejected, whether expressed or not, that consumers no longer want that. Um, And it's being expressed in our social value system. And it's being the the voices of women and men are getting louder and louder and louder. Of course, I say that in the week, well, where we'll decide on the potential or the on the candidacy of Judge Kavanaugh. Um, But I have been so impressed at the strength of the voices coming forward with their convictions and refusing to just let things go at this moment in time. So is that something that you think we'll see more of from L'Oreal and from you is just kind of, you know, backing those really loud voices, those loud voices that are really willing to make a change, whether it's across cosmetics or hair care or skin care or across beauty? Absolutely. Great. Um, Carol, in terms of last questions for you, I know we're all running out of time. What do you think, um, what can we come to expect from L'Oreal and from you in the coming months and year? So what you can expect from me is a commitment to my new role and, and um, being successful in the acquisition space and having all the stars aligned to actually be able to um, consummate an acquisition or two, um, but also being very committed to representing the company externally and the values of the company, especially in the areas of gender equality and in philanthropy. I think, again, companies need to be more overt at role modeling that, and that is something that um, I feel is really important for me to spend my time on at this stage of my career. And then lastly, probably the most important um, space where I like to spend my time and can add value is in mentoring other women and men um, about what it takes to be successful in long beauty careers. Um, And I think that's where I really like to spend my time. Perfect. Thank you so much, Carol. Really appreciated having you today. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. If you enjoy the Glossy Beauty Podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. Head to glossy.co slash plus and use the code PRIA25, P-R-I-Y-A 25, for 25% off an annual subscription. Don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Beauty Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and leave us any feedback you have.